With support from the Climate Cake Alumni Association, welcome to The Elephant. For the very first time in the history of Homo sapiens, we are asking people of different cultures in different continents to agree. Climate change is a fact. All the evidence suggests climate change is The coastline is of South Florida is going to be pushed considerably into our politics. Extreme events will be the new normal about global change. climate change. Climate change. Climate change is to blame. No one is addressing it. Time for talking is gone. This we need other It is the elephant in the room that we don't want to talk about. Hello, welcome to The Elephant. I'm Kevin Canners. On today's show, we're going to discuss some of the economics of climate change with Cameron Hepburn, a professor at the University of Oxford. Professor Hepburn is an expert in environmental resource and energy economics. In other words, he researches how economics shape the way we use and share the world's energy and resources. And while that might not initially sound that exciting, it's important work. And that's because the marketplace and the rules governments use to regulate it play a huge role in determining how we use our energy. And right now, many of those rules aren't exactly set up ideally. One example is fossil fuels. You probably know that most governments give money to oil, gas, and coal companies through tax breaks and other subsidies. But what you might not realize is that according to the International Monetary Fund, globally, those government subsidies amount to a staggering $10 million a minute. $10 million a minute, in effect, making it artificially affordable to burn exactly the stuff we need to leave in the ground. Now imagine if we remove those subsidies. And then imagine if governments charged energy companies a price for the carbon pollution they create. Suddenly, overnight, renewable energy options like solar and wind would be much more attractive to utilities and consumers alike. That's a simple example, but our conversation with Professor Hepburn gets deeper into the nuances of environmental economics. It's a pretty interesting area. For example, Kevin Hepburn explains how finding a market solution to carbon emissions can be tricky politically. You know, the big winner um, carbon pricing would be future generations. They're not alive yet, so they can't lobby. Hepburn also talks divestment and wonders if it's wise to encourage large investors to rid their stock in companies that pollute. All you really do when you sell stock is there's someone else who buys it and you've changed the ownership of the firm from an owner who cared about climate change to an owner who almost by definition cares less or, or doesn't care at all. And he tells us where the real power shortage lies when it comes to building a cleaner energy system. We've got no shortage of clean energy on this planet. The, the shortage is in the brain power that we've applied so far to harnessing it. We also talked about his modest hopes for the upcoming UN climate conference in Paris and how Sweden's carbon tax is a positive example of what strong economic policies can do. It's a great conversation, so let's get to it. Cameron Hepburn, welcome to The Elephant. My pleasure. Thanks, Kevin. You work in looking at how economics and, and economic policy can help us move towards a, a more sustainable future. But before we get to the, the solutions, the, the way that economics can play a positive role, I want to ask you the extent to which you see economics as maybe the cause of the problem in the first place of, of the climate crisis in terms of maybe both its, its hidden values and, and in the fact that one can pollute into the atmosphere for free, it, all these externalities that the system doesn't account for. How, how big of a role do you see that as bringing about the situation we're in in the first place? Yeah, look, they're both very good points. And in a sense, this is 
a good problem to have. Climate change is a problem because we're affluent and because of the way in which we generated that prosperity, obviously through the production consumption of fossil fuels. And uh, the market system that we have does a fantastic job uh, across many resources of allocating those resources properly. But central to that system working uh, is that you've got prices in play. So the reason we don't run out of raw materials and that you know, other assets across the economy are broadly speaking allocated reasonably well, okay, not perfectly, but certainly better than um, communist systems, is because price signals are really powerful. And So if, if there's a deficiency of copper, suddenly the price skyrockets and there's a huge incentive to do whatever it takes to get more copper. Yeah, exactly. And not just get more copper, to use our brains to think about uh, what substitute materials could be in play. And in particular, in that case, fiber optic, where you end up with innovation de delivering solutions that are both cheaper and better and lower footprint on the material resource base of the planet. And so the problem, the fundamental economic problem, as any economist will tell you, is that we don't have a price on the emissions that are going into the atmosphere. As you rightly pointed out, we, we don't make the polluters pay. And it's actually relatively hard politically to make the polluters pay uh, because of the way in which power works across uh, many democratic uh, societies. So um, we are, we're in this mess, I suppose you could say, partly as a result of um, our success in having a market structure and a market system that's delivered affluence, but also because that system hasn't got, hasn't allowed us to put prices into place and because of the way uh, it also delivers political power that prevents prices from being put into place. When you say it's because of how power works in a democratic system, can you flesh that out for me? What, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, whenever you have a policy change, there are going to be winners and losers, and the losers tend not to like it, and it's natural enough that the winners would lobby for it and the losers would lobby against it. The problem we have here is that the winners from large-scale carbon pricing across the globe very frequently either haven't existed yet, because they're future businesses and they're future people, um, you know, the big winner um, carbon pricing would be future generations. They're not alive yet, so they can't lobby. Or they're renewable energy firms which either don't exist yet or which are just starting to exist and they're not very, you know, not very wealthy or powerful. So the losers are here now and they're powerful here and now and so they're well able to, to block the change that we need. I heard you make a, an interesting comparison with the current problem we have with carbon emissions. Uh, versus what we had with CFCs, and, and which was solved fairly easily with the, the Montreal Protocol. Could you tell me about what, what the major differences between these two problems are? Yeah, um, the, it's a great analogy because it's both useful in its similarities, but also instructive in its differences. Now, um, the similarities are we had a, a pollutant, it was globally damaging, uh, and you know the world needed to get together and deliver a solution, and it did. Uh, the The differences are that with CFCs, you had a small number of very small number of players who were responsible for the production of the chemicals. Um, those players had a fairly ready-to-market solution that didn't damage the ozone layer, and so they were able to get together and say, "Look, we can make this transition at relatively low cost. Uh, we'll keep making profits, and we'll stop the depletion of the ozone layer." So we so we had the technology ready to put in play. Uh, and the incumbent players, you know, firms like DuPont and others, 
were not blocking the transition because they were also going to benefit from a world where the transition had happened. Now, for climate change, it's not just one gas to begin with, it's several, um, but CO2 is the main one. And it's not as if you've got a small number of producers of CO2. You've got the entire coal industry, which is you know all around the world. You've got the entire oil industry, which is all around the world, and the entire gas industry. And so all of us are you know, imp- implicated in the consumption and the production side. This is kind of uh, a, a problem that is highly entangled with the entirety of our economic system. You know, straight after this interview, I'm taking a train to London. I'm polluting by doing that. So it's hard to isolate uh, the, the, the small number of key players who need to change their behavior. And then even if you can do that, which you can at the country level, um, it's quite hard to identify how you could move into a solution where those powerful players can still do what they do and feel comfortable with the transition. And we've seen uh, the big oil companies fighting tooth and nail against action or, or as with, we've learned with Exxon, undermining the science or casting doubt on the science. Um, well, I think it's certainly not true of all of them, but yeah. And in particular, I would add the coal companies because the while oil and gas is definitely a problem, especially oil, um, and gas is too in the long run, it's the coal companies right now, and often they're state-owned, uh, that are doing the most damage both to the global climate but also to individual um, uh, individual lives lost. And there's a, a million people in China who die every year early because of coal. Uh, in this country, in the UK, it's... Because of smog and... Yeah, uh, because of air pollution, respiratory problems, um, health and safety throughout the supply chain, etc. And, and even in this country, we lose 28,000 people early from local air pollution sort of issues. So you know, quite apart from the global climate issue, you've got a, a supply chain for coal, which amounts to really digging very dirty stuff out of the ground in quite dirty processes and burning it in dirty processes. And it's you know, it's an old technology that isn't improving particularly quickly and is, is um, I just can't imagine it being a big part of the system in several decades, um, or at least certainly in the second half of this century. So, so it's coal, it's a problem. Oil and gas are a problem. Gas in the short run might be somewhat helpful. Um, you know, there's, there's debate with, among academics about this and lots of analysis being done about just how useful gas is to get us away from coal. Um, but yeah, your point stands that these uh, are companies and industries that have a strong incentive in the status quo being maintained. There was a, a pretty astounding figure that I saw you point out online uh, in, a, in a talk you gave. And that's uh, something like we currently are spending, or in a recent year, we're spending $670 billion searching for new oil uh, and fossil fuels and something like $350 billion on all climate mitigation put together, which, as you point out in the, in the talk, is, is crazy given the fact that we already have more oil in the reserves than we can possibly burn and still have a livable planet. Can you talk about uh, a bit about that number? Is that, is that still the case? Yeah, these, I mean, it's just nuts, the, the relative magnitudes. I mean, the other thing that I find nuts, just to add to that, is that um, until recently we were spending certainly under $10 billion a year on research and development efforts in clean energy, which is the thing that is going to bring down costs in the medium to long term and help us to you know, make sure that we can have an energy system that doesn't require government intervention that is clean. 
So ten billion on research and development and renewables, and six hundred and seventy or so searching for fossil fuels. Right, it's it's a ridiculous comparison. Um, now the six hundred and seventies come down as the oil prices come down because of the shale revolution. You, what we've got is that the incentives for the big players to spend on capital investments and so on has fallen. So a lot of them are scrapping their capital investment programs, and that's just market forces working as they do. Uh, and you know they won't. We probably won't see them go back up to those levels of above half a trillion uh, until the oil price rises, if it ever does. Uh, and I mean, it probably will in the in the medium to long term. But there's there's questions about where it will go in the in the short run. Um, but the point remains that the the stock that we already have of reserves of oil, coal, and gas, and resources, which is the broader category of oil, coal, and gas that isn't currently economically viable to extract, but we you know we know or we expect it to be there, and we think it could be extractable. Those stocks vastly outnumber what we can afford to put into the atmosphere and not fry ourselves to you know three, four, five, six degrees. And especially if you include the resources, so the broader category of coal and lignite, um, you know, we, there's just absolutely no way we can extract all of that without some magical technology that removes CO2 from the atmosphere and, and stores it underground. So it's a, it's a bet against us taking any reasonable action then? Uh, well, it's it would seem unlikely that we're going to get those technologies, so it would seem beyond plausible that we could extract all of that. So the fact that we're still looking for more oil, coal and gas tells you that the system is doing something weird. And what what it's doing is, and you trace it back to the way the financial system operates and the way the big fossil fuel extractives are valued. If their reserve replacement ratios fall, investors get worried that they're about the longevity of these companies. So as they produce more of their, they extract more of their reserves, they need to go out and find more each individually finding enough to cover um, the the reserves that they've taken out so this reserve replacement ratio is highly watched within the financial community and leads to this weird incentive for individually completely rational collectively odd that we are hunting for more fossil fuels i was wondering what you your thoughts on the divestment movement are in in making that point that it seems crazy that um that we're looking for more and, and that they're trying to expand their reserves. Yeah, um, I mean, I think the divestment movement's been very successful as a movement. The work at Oxford has kind of um, chronicled it and compared it to other divestment movements. And the fossil divestment movement has moved faster and been you know, more effective at getting publicity than many others. Whether it's actually sensible to divest rather than to engage and seek to shift the behavior of the companies, to me, is an open question. Uh, or to put it another way, all you really do when you sell stock is there's someone else who buys it. Um, so, you know, by definition, it's just a change in ownership. And you've changed the ownership of the firm from an owner who cared about climate change to an owner who almost by definition cares less or, or doesn't care at all about climate so we actually have a program here called the Oxford Martin uh, program on safe carbon investment. And the idea is to ask what should a responsible shareholder ask of a gas company or an oil company to help them to devise a, a strategy for a business that is consistent with a two degree world. And so maybe one of those strategies is that you, uh, you maintain your dividend payments, you reduce your capital expenditure, 
and you know you 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 target a company on higher and higher value products that are that are less and less in volume uh, and you see a, a an orderly wind down or maybe the sensible option for a fossil fuel company is to really get into carbon capture and sequestration in a big way to say you know the only way we can still be around and and contributing to the sum total of human welfare in 100 years time is if we can capture the carbon that the use of our product generates and so it would be plausible for you know, one of the international oil companies to say, we have a plan to be useful contributors to society for the next 100 years, and that plan involves CCS. That would be internally consistent. So what we're doing is asking investors to ask their companies, you know, what is your plan, uh, and why should we keep our money with you? And, and how optimistic that are you that that can actually make a, a difference? It seems like, um, unless you're a, a very, very big stakeholder, that, that might be hard, or a stockholder, that might be hard. Yeah, so for any, any individual investor, they're not going to, I mean, the threat of withdrawing their capital isn't going to do anything for sure. But it's the combined weight of many investors that would have the impact. And you, you often find um, groups of institutional investors do team up and act uh, in a concerted effort jointly um, so there's a there's an effort underway at the moment called the port uh, carbon uh, the portfolio decarbonization project i may have mangled that but anyway the, the the aim of that project is to focus the intention of increasing um, amounts of assets under management to to ensure that they're shifting their investments to the top 20 percent uh, of each of these sectors in terms of the carbon performance so that way, if you're the CEO of a, of a firm, you've got an incentive to be cleaning up your act so that you attract more capital and, in theory, you know, uh, the, the benefits of a, a better set of shareholder relationships. I, I want to get to what positive policies you see uh, that societies could take economically to actually move us towards a, a more sustainable future to, to wind ourselves off of, of fossil fuels. What are some of those policies that you see as, as perhaps having a, a really beneficial role? Right. Well, the, the two big ones where you should always start as an economist is we'd love to get carbon pricing into play and we would love to have uh, more substantial support for clean research and development. So they're the two major planks. Now, as we all know, it's been quite hard to get carbon pricing, whether it's through carbon trading scheme or carbon taxes widely into play across the world. We do have plenty of examples of it um, right here in Europe right now. We've got the European Emissions Trading Scheme, but the price is fairly low, running between 5 and 10 euros per tonne of CO2, and you'd really want those prices to be you know, many times higher than that, not just 50 or 100% higher, um, to, to stimulate the sort of transition that we need. So carbon prices are important. Um, if you can't get them into play, then the question is, well, what, what are the kind of second best policies uh, that you might wish to use? And one, one related policy is that we know, so again, work that our group has done, about to be published, not yet published, so um, hasn't been fully peer reviewed. We've known for a while that we've got this budget of emissions that we can put into the atmosphere. It's work done, again, by my colleague Miles Allen at Oxford in 2009. We also know that for any given piece of infrastructure, if you let it run for its usual lifetime, it will emit a certain stock. So it's not just the emissions today of a coal plant, but if you build a new coal plant today, it will emit for the next 30, 40, 50 years. So you can estimate the, the emissions that we're more or less committed to within the existing infrastructure, 
and compare that to the budget of emissions that we've got and come up with this idea of well, what's the date at which we will hit a capital stock that will take us over two degrees eventually. And that date seems to be within the next 10 to 15 years. You, in terms of capital stock, you mean like the, the infrastructure we built? That's what exactly. you mean? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we have an existing infrastructure. We're adding to that infrastructure. The infrastructure we're adding is by and large dirty, not clean. And if we can keep adding at the rate that we're adding at the moment, within 10 or 15 years, we'll, we're not, we won't be at two degrees then. We'll be at you know, just over one degree of warming. But we will have locked ourselves in more or less to, to a two-degree world unless you strand some of those assets early and take them, take them offline before they're economically, um, you know, before it be economically sensible to do so, or you have to have large-scale CCS. So in that context, to go back to your question, what are the policy mechanisms? I started by saying carbon prices. If you can't get carbon prices, there are some second-best policies. Some of the second-best policies are to recognise that we really shouldn't be building any new dirty infrastructure at all globally uh, from about 2025 or 2030. And in rich countries, that should have started now. So a sensible policy would be to effectively have a moratorium on new coal investment or new coal assets, either mines or power plants, uh, possibly even the early retirement of some coal plant, depending importantly on what it's replaced by. So these are these are more command and control diktats from the state than they are uh, market-friendly pricing mechanisms. But if for various reasons you can't get the market to work, then you need the government to... We need the government either way, but if the government can't make the market work, the government needs to step in directly. And, and yet uh, we've seen some uh, some rather bad uh, bad news both in, in Britain and, and where you're from, Australia, in terms of reversing these these types of policies. Uh, Britain is just uh, scaling back the the renewable uh, the solar energy subsidies right now. Why do you think this is is taking place? Um, especially given the case that they were already in, it would seem to already have have broad support. Yeah, I mean, I think this will be a across the world. This will be a kind of a bit of a stop-start process is because there's a major transition, major interests on both sides. So you'll you'll have what appears to be progress, what appears to be the unwinding of progress, etc. Um, now in Australia, for instance, we've had a change in prime minister, and the new prime minister Malcolm Turnbull has been very strong on climate change for many years. So while Australia's not going to re-reverse its position immediately, you can expect to see that start to head in in the right sort of direction in the coming years. In the UK, um, look, what's driven the reversals here is as much to do with public perception that this is all getting very expensive. Um, now I'm not sure that it actually is all that expensive, but certainly per tonne of carbon abated, those renewable support policies were not very economically efficient. That's not to say you, you don't want deployment support. Um, you do because it helps to bring down the costs, uh, but you'd like... It's quite important that we have as efficient as possible policies because the general public um, you know, are not as interested in this issue as I am or as you are. And you know, they're, they're, you've got to think about someone who drives an SUV and really doesn't care. There's a, there's, a, there's a tolerance to how much those sorts of voters will accept price increases to deal with the problem. So it's important we do it at low cost. So, so part of what was going on in the UK is a sense that there's budgetary pressure across the board. You know, what can we cut? I mean, everything's being cut here. Uh, and with it goes some of the renewable energy policies. My suspicion is um, that we will see 
this government in this country um, announce some other policies to ensure that progress continues to be made on climate change, but in a much cheaper way, or at least that would be my hope. And do you think that's possible? Uh, sure. So um, supporting early stage renewables is a very uh, useful policy globally because it helps to bring down the cost, but a lot of those benefits are accrued to other countries. Now, if you're in a period of time where you're you know, looking a bit more a bit more inwardly, perhaps a bit more self-interestedly, um, you may wish to make uh, your emission reductions more directly. So you could phase out coal, for instance, in the UK, uh, which may well may or may not happen here. We'll see in the lead up to Paris. And um, the cost per tonne of eliminating coal from the UK power system would be a lot cheaper than the cost per tonne of CO2 of supporting lots of renewables. Uh, that doesn't make sense to me, though, because don't you have to replace uh, the coal with something? Absolutely, you do. So what you don't want to be doing is replacing it by building a whole lot of new um, carbon-based power generation, new gas plants. But there's quite a lot of gas already on the system that is not being used, partly because coal prices are so low uh, and gas prices, hence, relatively high, that you've got an underutilised gas plant on the UK power grid. And so if you're to shut the coal down... Um, you can, you know, in large measure, uh, still make up the power that you need by existing gas plants. And then, the, and then natural gas would be a bridge too. Yeah, natural gas is is half as emissions intensive as coal. Uh, now that is that's not a statement that is generally true always and everywhere because it depends upon where it's coming from, what the leakage issues are. Are you building new kit? Are you embedding new infrastructure for thirty, forty, fifty years? But Certainly from an operational point of view, if you've got you know, LNG from Qatar or um, other, as we, we do here, or gas from Norway, etc., then um, and you've got existing gas plant, then shutting down your coal and moving, moving to those existing gas plant is saving you 50% of your emissions at not that much cost. So you said ideally we would be able to get a, a price on, on carbon, if that was politically feasible at least. What successes have we seen where they have actually been implemented? Um, well, the Swedes have a price on carbon that is around, well, certainly over $100 a tonne of CO2, um, actually substantially higher than that. And that hasn't killed their economy. They've been growing very nicely. I mean, they have a lot of nuclear power. So, you know, perhaps you could say there's, you know, that it was easier for them to do that. But in general, I mean, the, the Scandinavian countries have fairly high prices on carbon, and they also have flourishing economies and prosperous uh, citizens. So th there's absolutely no reason why you can't get prices up and why they can't be quite helpful. We've seen a fantastic case in Canada, in I think British Columbia, where there's been a, a revenue neutral carbon pricing regime. So other taxes have been lowered. And this is just makes perfectly good sense that if, if you can stimulate your economy by reducing taxes on good things like labour, well, you know, we all work and, and people's labour is a great thing. Why tax it? And increasing taxes on the bads that you want to eliminate from your economic activity like carbon. So, and, and that, that tax shift tends to be more politically palatable because if people are seeing that other taxes are coming down or they're getting a kind of handout, then they'll tolerate paying a bit more on their, their pollution. So those sorts of um, implementations of carbon taxes can work well. 
And have we seen uh, emissions come down in those in those yeah, states? There is plenty of evidence across the world that carbon pricing really does work. I mean, it's kind of it'd be stunning if it didn't, because it's so obvious in theory that you know if you if you if you, if you increase the price of something, people don't want to buy it as much. Uh, and what carbon pricing does is it both uh, reduces the price that producers of fossil fuels get and increases the price that consumers pay for the products of fossil fuels. So you have a lower incentive for the producers to produce it and a, 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 and a higher incentive for consumers to switch away from it. So both in theory and in practice, carbon pricing works. You know, a, a lot of the current thinking by a lot of people concerned about climate change, environmentalists, is that, well, we need to, and in, in a way it seems like an obvious idea, is that we need to get to uh, zero growth or even degrowth. And you seem to, to think this is, is not necessary, that we can do green growth. Could you explain some of your ideas behind that, why, why we don't need to do what seems quite obvious in your view of, of getting to zero growth? Yeah, look, I think this is actually both misguided and quite a dangerous idea that we need to stop growth. Um, and my view is that it's, it's not necessary to stop growth to deal with climate change. It's not feasible to stop growth because you've got, you know, I mean, for, for those of us, the billion well-off citizens of the seven billion on the, on the world, it seems like a you know, plausible idea. But if, if you're among the billion who live on a dollar or, or thereabouts a day, uh, you, you don't want to stop growth. You want a lot of it as much as you can. So it's not feasible to ask the world to stop growth. And, and it's not desirable. Uh, either because you know you want prosperity to be to be spread so it's not feasible it's not necessary it's not desirable um, the reason it's not feasible is that or necessary actually let me start with necessary is because the way in which we can reduce emissions by technological shifts those that set of possibilities is far cheaper than just slamming on the brakes on economic growth uh, and to give you some numbers, if we try and reduce emissions by cutting uh, economic prosperity or economic output, you're talking about costs of one or $2,000 per tonne of CO2. Perhaps I'm just broad brush. If you look at energy efficiency, it might even be negative costs per tonne or, or very low once you add barriers into the, into the equation. Um, coal to gas switching, it's a few tens of dollars per, per tonne of CO2 and renewables, you know, a, a bit more than that. Or, or in some parts of the world right now, it's, you know, it's, it's cheaper to use renewables than it is to use fossil fuels. So this has got to be a story about um, technological progress, about positive advances for humanity, where we're using cleaner uh, means of producing energy, where we're smarter about the consumption of energy and the other uh, emission-intensive sectors. And cutting growth is really an admission that we don't have the brains to solve this problem, that we can't think our way out of it. And you know, I'm, I'm not a kind of um, super techno-optimist, and I don't think technology is a solution to everything. And a lot of this problem resol resolves around us using our intelligence to come up with better governance systems and other arrangements to get the interplay between technology, economics and politics working properly. But just slamming on the brakes isn't fair on those who are very poor today and it's actually not even going to get us there. I mean, while the financial crisis reduced emissions, it also massively reduced the willingness of the global community to invest money in to addressing climate change. And, and that's what I think you'd find if we suddenly felt poor. I heard you suggest that per, like, perhaps we need uh, a price on natural capital. Like if, if 
right now, if we cut down a forest and make toothpicks, it's only worth something once we've cut it down and made the toothpicks. Um, do, do you think that's a, a feasible option? And how, how would that actually work in practice? Yeah. Um, so there's no doubt in theory, this is a brilliant idea. Um, you're right that in practice, it's harder, but it's not impossible. And we've got several examples, emerging examples of where this is being done. Uh, in the UK, there's the first ever Natural Capital Committee. Uh, this reports into the Chancellor, so the Finance Ministry. It's not an environmental body. Uh, and its remit is to both think about pricing natural capital within government accounts uh, so that, it, so that the, the value of the, um, the forests, the fisheries, the subsoil assets, etc. ecosystems appear on the national balance sheet, as it were, for the country. Uh, but also working with um, private organizations and companies to think about pricing natural capital throughout their supply chain. And the reason some country, you know, companies are interested in this is because while a lot of natural capital is, quote, free at the moment, and they don't necessarily pay for it, uh, because it's free, you get overuse. And once you get overuse, you might suddenly find you've got a supply chain problem. And it's worth thinking about what it would cost you uh, if what, what it ought to cost you, how you should properly price natural capital across your supply chain so that you're using those resources more sensibly. In short, if governments around the world aren't going to do this properly, companies have an interest in thinking, well, we're going to do it so that we're using our resources most efficiently and so that if there is a shock to the system down the line, we're, we're ready for it because we've been pricing it in accordingly. And is that happening? I mean, that's, that sounds uh, to me a lot more forward thinking than a lot of uh, corporations tend to seem. Yeah, look, these are, these are exceptions, not the rule right now, for sure. So we, we don't have, we're, we're not on the cusp of a scaling up type revolution. We're, we're at the vanguard era. Uh, but you find it amongst you know, a lot of companies that are heavily reliant on water, drinks companies, alcoholic beverages type companies are thinking hard about this because their water supplies are essential to their, them being able to sell a product. Uh, other, you know, fast-moving consumer goods companies, the Unilevers and Proctors and Gambles of the world, you know, they, they make their margin by selling you know, fish fingers and the like. And that's fine until you run out of fish and you've got no business. So, so they're also very interested in ensuring that we've got good policy and good, and in the absence of good policy, sensible, you know, industry-led coalitions to, to make sure that we're managing these resources properly. So you, so you do find leadership in some cases. Right. Whereas right now with fish, if, uh, if it's depleting, then the fish probably only get more valuable and uh, the higher incentive to get them. Yeah. Sadly, you do get these fairly nasty, uh, um, well, they're, they're positive feedbacks. Only, they're not positive in the sense that they're not great, but they're, they're self-reinforcing processes where you deplete more of the stock, the price rises and the incentive to deplete it rises further. Yeah. Now, as you alluded to, you know, climate change is, has been a, a problem caused by the wealthy nations, the wealthy of the world, um, the one billion or so uh, of us in, in Europe and North America. And of course, the, the brunt of the effects are on the developing world. And I was wondering what economics has to say about, about this and if there's a way around it. Like famously, there was the $100 billion promised in Copenhagen to help developing countries deal with both uh, adapting to climate change and, and moving to renewables. What do you see that as playing a role, and what is, what is the outlook right now on that that number? Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. Damages 
caused by the rich and felt most keenly by the poor. So there are major equity issues um, between rich and poor right now, and there are fairness and equity issues between the current generation and future generations as well. And this has been one of the most contentious features of climate negotiations for years. Um, it's still contentious right now in the lead up to Paris. Uh, but the, I mean, the way I look at it is that the most important thing here is that we, we get ourselves onto a, a track that reduces emissions as swiftly as possible. That's the way you do the least damage to the poor countries. It's not to not to say that loss and damage and compensation for the loss and damage experience isn't important. It, it is for reasons of justice. But step one is to minimise the loss and damage that is going to be caused. And that's what the rich countries have the strongest uh, and most pressing obligation to do. Now, I, I'm well aware that quite a lot of the rest of the world doesn't see it that way that the, the most important thing is that they get their 100 billion a year uh, and, and that has been promised and it is important to deliver on that through some sensible blend of public and private finance but um, the, the honestly the most important thing that we could do in the rich world is to make the clean technologies that will help solve the problem incredibly cheap cheaper than fossil fuel this will give a stimulus to you know if we were to get to that point it's some way away, but if we could to get to that point, you give the entire global economy a, a shot in the arm because cheap energy does that to economic activity. And it means that we've, we've borne the costs of effectively solving the problem and then ensuring that instead of buying, you know, to give you an example, um, promote a, a, a business that one of my uh, former MBA students is now involved in, M. Copa in Africa. It's a company that distributes solar PV panels, lights and radios and a battery and an information system and a financial package all rolled into one. It is cheaper than kerosene in uh, Africa and they've got, gone from nothing to having a quarter of a million customers. No government subsidies, is market play. So that sort of tech development will see the rollout of prosperity in a clean way and it's just far more important that we are innovating and providing these solutions and then transferring them to the rest of the world. Uh, then we end up in endless battles about you know loss and damage. I think you mentioned uh, you know Tony Abbott is no longer the the Prime Minister of Australia. He was you know one of the worst climate villains in the world. I think uh, was widely agreed. And and Stephen Harper has just uh, been voted out in Canada. But nonetheless, there have been very bad players in working on the the climate crisis. And I was wondering how what, what you see as can be done to to punish these countries uh, if they are not willing to go along with uh, positive steps. What can the international community do to sort of extract a price if a country like Saudi Arabia or Canada or Australia decides we don't want to take any positive steps? It's a fundamentally important question. So, Kevin, well done for asking it. And, I mean, one of the problems of Kyoto widely commented upon is that there was no real mechanism for punishment. There was a mechanism, but, you know, as we've seen, Canada left the day before any kind of punishment would have hit them, uh, and so it walked away scot-free. And uh, yeah, there's a limit to what you can do, how you can tie sovereign states. Uh, it's not like we have a global judiciary and a global police force. So punishment has to be smarter um, and uh, secondary. By secondary, I mean 
because you've got sovereign states who don't like to be punished, um, the, the most important thing is that you find deals that work for everyone so that they are, in, in, in economics jargon, they're incentive compatible. You know, people just uh, say what they, they mean and that um, then they, they have an interest in delivering on what they've committed to doing. And so part of the structure of the Paris Agreement which has its flaws, but it, it, um, it's designed so that countries will only commit to doing things that they actually want to do. Uh, so there shouldn't be as much of a need for uh, punishing countries that don't deliver. Now, having said that, uh, one of the consequences of just getting countries to do what they want to do is that you end up with an agreement that barely takes you to halfway towards where you need to go. So you know, the, the ambition in the Paris Agreement will be nowhere near enough. So your question is the right one, which is how do we step up in a way that brings everyone together? And there are, you know, economists have been thinking about this for a while as a political scientist. And the, the key idea here is um, effectively that of a club. So you want to make the incentive such that if uh, one country joins, then they have no incentive to leave the club and the more countries that join the more other countries want to join because they're the benefits of being in the inside this kind of low carbon club exceed the costs of remaining outside and, and what would those benefits be right so one benefit for instance would be um, uh, trade advantages on clean technology and related technology so so like say norway sweden and, and germany get together and say we're we're going to give each other special trade preferential trade agreements and you know there is there has been discussion there's discussion ongoing about a a trade and environmental goods and services agreement that would you know if you're in that club you would get very low or, or even zero tariffs on those sorts of goods and services so you know if you're outside the club you you've got to be paying uh you paying tariffs to export your goods and services into into members who are inside the club so you may well want to join the club so that's part of the kind of benefits of membership, as it were. But then you, you almost, I mean, that's the carrot. You do, as I've thought for many years, I still think, you need the stick as well. And one way of thinking about the stick of, or the, the cost of not being in the club is that you, know, you face higher tariffs. Um, and in the climate change arena, it's you know, an economically impeccable idea that if you're not pricing carbon within your own country and others are pricing carbon in their countries, then the goods and services that you export into a country with a high carbon price should also have to pay the same high carbon price that the domestic players in that country are facing. So this is... So about say Canada's making aluminum and using coal to, to make it and they're trying to export it to Germany, then... A big tariff would be put on that. Yeah, exactly, because any German producers of um, aluminium or, or any part of that supply chain would be paying that carbon price. So it's it's not about being unfair to Canadian producers. It's in fact being about being fair to both German and Canadian producers. So they're both paying the same carbon price. And equally, if you've got German producers of something carbon intensive, and, and they're exporting it into another jurisdiction they should get a reduction on the carbon price that they've paid so that they don't have to compete in an unfair way in their export markets. And so if you were to um, level out your carbon prices at the border in this way, carbon tariffs for those who don't have carbon prices exporting into markets with carbon prices and, and carbon supports or subsidies for or the removal of the carbon price for people 
exporting from a high price area to a low price area, then several things happen. You know, you, you have an, the countries have an incentive to join up into a high carbon price area because you add a carbon tax or yeah, exactly because you know one way or the other the carbon tax is going to be levied and if the canadians are going to export their carbon intensive produce to germany and the germans are going to collect the tax well it's fairly dumb for canada canada should just put the tax on at home and collect the cash so so it radiates the incentive to spread carbon prices across the world and the the, the most common complaint about this idea is that it's you know, it may not be WTO compatible, it could reduce, in, introduce frictions to trade. And most scholarship shows that um, while there are, you have to be careful about how you design it, or else it could be WTO in, incompatible, it, it's in principle feasible to design these things so that they are fine with the WTO. And then on the second point, you know, this is frictions to trade. The way I see it is that at the moment what we've got is a dubious carbon subsidy to trade that is um, accelerating trade in pollution effectively. Uh, and so what the border carbon adjustments, as they're called, would be doing would just be leveling the playing field and, and making trade more economically efficient. So could you, I mean, this would be a, an obviously bad scenario, but say a, a Republican is as elected president who basically the entire field not only doesn't want to do anything about climate change, a lot of them actually deny it's even uh, even exists, and and say world action on climate change starts to really rally uh, Paris and beyond. Do you think a, a country even as powerful as America could there be a high enough price extracted that it would have a an impact? Um, not impossible. So you know, you go back ten years, and no one would have thought that China would have a national carbon trading scheme ahead of the U.S. But that's what we've got. And China's already got seven provincial schemes and city schemes, and its national scheme is very likely to come in in 2017. Um, China, 10 years ago, was looking at this idea of border carbon adjustments with great suspicion. And it's interesting how their attitude to them has gone from you know, concern and uh, uh, worry to intellectual interest to real potential to think about applying them within the country between different Chinese provinces and you know, potentially uh, if China ends up being one of those countries with a higher carbon price, uh, potentially using them to, to level the playing field with other countries as well. So if you were to have you know, Europe, China, Australia, other parts of Asia with carbon pricing and America without carbon pricing, which by the way I don't think is all that likely. Uh, I think your characterization of the situation is probably, well, let, let's play it out as a, a scenario, at least, that, then you, you could well see the rest of the world putting substantial pressure on the US, you know, economic pressure, uh, just, just in their own interests, not, not to be bullying the US, but just saying, well, look, you're not doing this, we are. And this is one of the features of it. If you want to come into, if you want to play in our markets, then we will add the carbon price at the border if you're not going to. And this could be done both indi like by individual states and as a, a group? Um, yeah, potentially, yeah. Well, to end off, I'm curious about what you're looking out for, especially going to Paris, and if there's any economic policies or economic aspects of any potential agreement that happens there that, that you're really keeping your eye on and that you think could have a big impact. Yeah, the thing I'm most excited about kind of isn't necessarily on the formal negotiating table, uh, but it's whether we might see a big scale up in support for clean energy R&D. So, you know, I know that there are some 
discussions of this behind the scenes and uh, if we were to see some kind of agreement on research and development into clean energy I think that would be one of the most promising things because even though it's not going to do anything tangible for at least five or ten years this is not a two or three year problem it's a 30 year problem and you know the earlier we get going on putting smart brains into tackling this problem the better and you know the it's worth saying here that we use 500 to 1,000 exajoules of energy for the sum totality of our requirements for global civilization, for heating, cooking, transport, lighting, etc., industry. And we have you know, over 5 million exajoules coming in from the sun every year. So we've got no shortage of clean energy on this planet. The, the shortage is in the brain power that we've applied so far to harnessing it. And for me, that's one of the most leveraged things we could do. Just get some more smart brains in this university at Oxford and, and elsewhere, capturing energy from the wind and the sun. And so that's important to me. Um, the other thing that's really important is yeah, everyone knows Paris is not going to deliver an agreement that is anywhere near ambitious enough. So central to it is how these cycles, whether they're five-year cycles or, or other um, period, how 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 these cycles are designed. These UN cycles, you mean? Or? Yeah. Um, so the, the idea is that you have a ratcheting process where everyone agrees to get together on a regular timetable and to submit more ambitious pledges because everyone accepts that where we are at the moment is, is not ambitious enough. So precisely how that mechanism for ratcheting up um, uh, ambition is, is going to look, that, that's very important. And finally, going back to your question about fairness and equity, justice, etc. Um, you know, it's true that this is a very, very important feature of the international deal. As I was saying earlier, I, I think that solving the problem is even more important, but that's not to belittle just how important the, the fairness side is. So uh, it's, still, it's still fairly open whether we're going to get something that um, a lot of the world's poorer countries considered to be fair, and that's incredibly important to keep the momentum moving along. So they're, they're the three important things I'd highlight. A, a lot to uh, keep our eye on then. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. My pleasure, Kim. Thank you. That was Professor Cameron Hepburn, Professor of Environmental Economics at the University of Oxford. And that's all for this episode of The Elephant. Special thanks to Mervyn Deganios, who helped put this episode together. The Elephant is made by myself, Kevin Kaners, with Matthias Gutz and Christina Peters. You can find us online, we're at elephantpodcast.org, or on Facebook, or say hi on Twitter. Our handle is at elephantpodcast. We're given support by the CKAA, a European society of entrepreneurs, scientists, students, professionals, and policy officers working to create a climate-resilient society. Find out more at ckaa.eu. I'm Kevin Kaners. See you next time.